Thanksgiving is a time to give thanks to our Heavenly Father for all of His provision. In America, we reflect on that first Thanksgiving and the faithfulness of God in establishing our nation. American Family Radio presents Thanksgiving 365, featuring Dr. Ray Pritchard. Ray is a frequent co-host of today's issues and serves as president of Keep Believing Ministries. And now, here's Ray. Once again, the holiday season has rolled around and people are asking, where did the year go? Already the stores are filled with Christmas decorations. Children are wondering what they will find under the tree and mom and dad are wondering how they will pay for it. These days, Thanksgiving is basically a pre-season holiday, something you do to get in shape for Christmas. We eat, we sleep, we watch football, and we don't stop until January. That's a shame because the art of giving thanks is one thing that separates us from the animals. To receive a gift and say thank you is one of the noblest things anyone can do. There is nothing small or trivial about it. To say thank you is to acknowledge that we've been given something we did not earn and do not deserve. Happy are they who understand that all of life is a gift from God and that life itself is the ultimate gift, which is why the Bible says, in everything, give thanks. When we can't do anything else, we can always be grateful. But the holidays are not always easy. Adrian Rogers highlighted the problem this way. We buy things we do not need with money we do not have to impress people we do not like. You might call this the other side of Thanksgiving. Not every family gathering is a happy time. As I thought about that, I pondered the words of Proverbs 15, 15. All the days of the oppressed are wretched, but the cheerful heart has a continual feast. I love that last phrase. The cheerful heart has a continual feast. People with a cheerful heart have Thanksgiving 365 days a year. What is the secret? Well, Proverbs 15, 16, and 17 reveal two qualities that produce the cheerful heart that enjoys a continual feast. And here's the good news. These attitudes of the heart are within the reach of all of us because they do not depend on income, position, reputation, education, the size of our bank account, or any sort of worldly attainment. The least among us may have a continual feast wherever we go if we take these two verses to heart. First, fill your heart with faith. Here's Proverbs 15, verse 16. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Check out that first word, better. Some things are better than others. Solomon, who was the richest man in the world, does not mean to exalt poverty as if it is to be preferred to wealth. Most poor people would like to be wealthy if given the chance, and many of them work long hours to try and get ahead. So this is not a proverb in praise of living on the edge of financial disaster. But from the beginning of time, there have always been more poor than rich. The world's resources are not evenly distributed. Some things matter more than other things. If Jesus is among you, spend time with him while you can. Then go and feed the poor. Feed your spirit and then feed the hungry. The words of Solomon remind us that wealth is no panacea. Yes, it's true. Money is the answer for everything. Ecclesiastes 10:19. Better to have some money than none at all. Yes, the rich have large houses, nice furnishings, 
excellent medical insurance and protection against many troubles. But death comes to the rich just as it does to the poor. The rich get cancer and die. The rich divorce. The rich have problems with their children. Wealth provides only a limited protection in this world. Wealth cannot compensate for the breakup of a marriage, for children in jail, or sudden death. I read about a wealthy man whose son died in a plane crash. Speaking of it later, he said, Once you lose your son, you find out that there is no such thing as serious money. Life and death are serious. Money is not. If we have to choose between wealth and the fear of the Lord, let us choose the latter. In point of fact, most of us don't get the choice. The vast majority of the world will never be wealthy, but we can all fear the Lord. There is another way to look at it. Wealth, by definition, is a relative term. As I speak these words, I'm sitting in my office in my home. My wife and I live in a four-bedroom house with a nice front yard and a fenced-in backyard. We have one car in the driveway. We have one TV, two laptop computers, two iPhones, one iPad, and one Kindle e-reader. Since we plan to move soon, most of our belongings are packed in the garage or in a storage unit. A few years ago, I gave away 40 boxes of books to a local pastor. Now I'm down to three or maybe four boxes of books. We have a king-size bed, some furniture, and our clothes plus some personal items. When the time comes to move, we won't need a huge truck. We moved here in a 26-foot rental truck five years ago. I doubt we would need one that large now. After decades of accumulating things, we have been in a de-accumulation mode for a few years. I think most people go through something like that. For years, maybe for decades, you work and save and buy and invest and build and decorate, and then you store the excess. But as life rolls on and the kids grow up and move away, you find that some of the things you couldn't do without don't seem to matter very much. While packing for our eventual move, I found myself asking, what do we have that we can do without? I figure if I haven't touched a book in 20 years, I probably won't touch it in the next 20 either, so I take it with us. I thought about that, and then my mind went to the trip I took to India. When we were in Mumbai, we passed by slums that defy all human imagination. Millions, and I mean millions, of men and women and boys and girls live in circumstances of such grinding poverty that it almost numbs the mind. Our friend Benny Matthews showed us places where people live in cardboard boxes under bridges. Not a few, but thousands and then millions, side by side. He said that ten men may share the same tiny space, sleeping in shifts while the others go to work. The men and women who live like that hardly worry about what to take with them when they move. They own the clothes on their back and not much else. Compared to them, I am the wealthy man of verse 16. Let's say it this way. It is better to live with a roof over your head and with money in the bank and with food on the table. But it is better yet to live with the fear of the Lord in your heart. One need not feel sorry for having more than someone else. But what a fool I am if I think that I somehow deserve what I have or that I am somehow better than someone who has less than I do. What do I have that I did not receive? It's all a gift from God. Everything good in this world ultimately comes from God. If it's good, God made it, He gave it, or He sent it. 
The familiar words of the doxology state this very plainly. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That includes every meal, every drink of clean water, every bit of electricity that powers my computers, every book I read, every shirt I wear, and every bowl of soup put before me. Solomon does not ask those who have more to feel guilty about what they have. After all, even in the slums, some have more and some have less. Look around. Someone will always be ahead of you. Someone will be behind you and others will be right where you are right now. It's not as if everything is equal. Better to live in poverty and know the Lord than to be the richest man in the world and think you did it yourself. The rich man eventually discovers that his riches take wings and fly away. If he doesn't discover it in this life, he discovers it when he dies, because all that he worked so hard for, he leaves behind. In that respect, we all come in and go out the same way. As Job said, naked I came and naked I shall leave. An Italian proverb says, the last robe has no pockets. When a rich man dies, we like to say, how much did he leave? Well, the answer is always the same. He left all of it. The lesson is clear. Most of us will never be truly rich in this world's goods, but we can all be rich in faith and love and rich in the knowledge of God. J.I. Packer tells of an acquaintance whose career derailed because of his evangelical convictions. When asked if he harbored any ill feelings, he replied quite simply, I've known God and they haven't. Packer goes on to note that most of us would not feel comfortable speaking in such straightforward terms, but the terms are entirely biblical. Knowing God does make a difference. And that is the defining characteristic of those who follow Jesus Christ. To know God deeply and intimately more than makes up for the things we lose because of our faith. Writing 250 years ago, English pastor John Gill summarizes the blessings of the man who fears the Lord. For such a man, though he has but little, which is the common portion of good men, yet he does not lack. He has enough and is content. What he has, he has with a blessing, and he enjoys it, and God in it, and has communion with him, and has also other bread to eat the world knows nothing of, and particularly having the fear of God, the eye of God is upon him with pleasure. His heart is towards him and sympathizes with him in all his troubles. His hand communicates unto him both temporal and spiritual meat, which is given to them that fear the Lord. His angels encamp about him. His power protects him. His secrets are with him. And inconceivable and inexpressible goodness is laid up for him. That's the end of the quote. Now just go back and savor, ponder, think about this sentence. What he has, he has with a blessing, and he enjoys it, and God in it, and has communion with him. Can the world offer anything better than that? So the first key to having a life that is a continual feast is to fill your heart with faith. Here's the second one. Fill your home with love. Proverbs 15, verse 17. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. Here are some other translations of this verse. 
better a meal of greens with love than a plump calf with hate. The contemporary English version offers us this beautiful reading. A simple meal with love is better than a feast where there is hatred. The ERV simplifies the meaning down to the bare essentials. It's better to eat a little where there is love than to eat a lot where there is hate. Finally, we have this from Eugene Peterson in The Message. Better a bread crust shared in love than a slab of prime rib served in hate. All the versions come out in the same place. The most bountiful feast in the world may be ruined if the people at the table hate each other. Discord at the dinner table destroys a good meal, no matter how sumptuous the fare, whether it be prime rib or T-bone steaks or turkey and dressing with all the trimmings. Your cooking may equal what they offer on the food channel. But if your loved ones do not really love each other, what good is all that effort and all that time and all that money? You might as well skip the meal altogether. Now, the word vegetables refers to the simple fare that a poor family might share. It might be spinach or collard greens or cabbage. This family is so poor that they are vegetarian by necessity, not by choice. When they come together, they share nothing but a handful of stewed greens. It is not extravagant, but it tastes good because it is served with love. Solomon doesn't mean to elevate poverty above wealth. He merely reminds us that money doesn't necessarily bring happiness. It certainly doesn't guarantee a happy family or a harmonious Thanksgiving dinner. The point is, we know these things. We don't need Solomon to tell us because deep down, we know that faith and love matter far more than money or fame. And that's one reason why It's a Wonderful Life remains one of the most beloved Christmas movies of all time. When George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, contemplates suicide on Christmas Eve, it takes the help of an angel named Clarence to help him see the difference his life has made. As it happens, three of the best lines in the movie come from the angel. Here's the first. Strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Here's the second one. You see, George, you've really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to just throw it away? The third one isn't a spoken line. It's the inscription in a book left for George by the angel as the movie comes to its climax. Remember, George, no man is a failure who has friends. So, if we know these things... Why does Solomon have to remind us? Because we need reminding, that's why. Because we all live under the spell of the big world with its flashing lights, alluring games, beautiful people, and all the promises of the good life on the other side of the street. Have you ever wondered why so many rich and powerful men and women will seemingly throw away all their common sense and go after Go after an affair. I mean, after a lifetime of brilliant success, suddenly they have an affair that's splashed on TV and radio and across the internet, and suddenly they're tweeting about it and people are talking about it on Facebook and it's on TMZ. Have you ever wondered why that happens? Well, there really isn't just one answer to that question, except to note that going back to the beginning of time, 
people in power sometimes do very stupid things. It's good to contemplate that and to learn from it because we are all made from the same clay. Those beautiful and smart people destroyed themselves by doing things they swore they would never do. But let's understand, these temptations apply not only to the rich and beautiful, but to all the rest of us as well. Sometimes not so beautiful people do amazingly dumb things too. One can only hope that the finger pointing at others will lead us all back to honest self-examination. Now, you may think I've changed the subject here, but I really haven't because all of this is Solomon's subject. Remember, the operative word is better. It's better to enjoy a simple meal where love abounds than to feast at the finest restaurant in Paris, drink the finest wines, and be surrounded by people you can't stand. As the carnival barker says, you pay your money and you take your chances. Thousands of people will read Solomon, nod in agreement, and then go out and blow up their own family by a round of foolish choices. The point is, we know these things are true, but you don't have to live this way. Remember what Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The Bible says, see, I have set before you today life and death. Choose life that you may live. That's wonderful advice, first given by Moses to the children of Israel. But even after all that wandering in the desert, and after a whole generation died, they made the same mistakes over and over again. I mean, you can read it in the Old Testament. God blessed them. The people were happy. Then they got complacent. Then they began to backslide. Then they went after the idols of other nations and they fell into sexual promiscuity and God judged them and the judgment was fierce. And the people cried out to God and God in his mercy forgave them and the people were happy and they obeyed God for a while. And then they got complacent and then they backslid and the whole thing happened all over again. Lately, I've been reading and listening to the Psalms in my quiet time. When I came to Psalm 78, which recounts the early history of Israel, I was struck by the emphasis on how Israel kept messing up and how God judged them and then forgave them and then they would do it all over again. You can read it for yourself. I'm not exaggerating at all. God ends up being the real hero of the story. Listen to verses 40 and 41 of Psalm 78. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. The people who knew what God had said either forgot or didn't care or thought they had a better idea or just decided to do things their own way. It never worked out. And by the way, friends, it never does. So you come to a wonderful verse like this. But he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the wilderness. That's Psalm 78, 52. And that's us, by the way. We are God's sheep. Every time you turn around, we're going our own way. Left to ourselves, we'll get lost. Or we'll wander back to Egypt. Or we'll start fighting each other or we'll end up as supper for the wolves. 
We're unruly and we don't like to be led. And sometimes we're just plain dumb, which is why Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. So here's the good news. God leads his sheep all the way through the wilderness. He knows how we are. We don't fool him. He knows how unruly and restless we are and how prone we are to wander away. By his grace, eventually we'll make it to safety and rest and shelter. My friends, there is a better way to live, but it depends on us believing that our shepherd knows what he is doing, even when we think we have a better idea. If we have faith and if we have love, then we have what we need at this very moment. Now, I love how Matthew Henry puts it. It is therefore far better and more desirable to have but a little of the world and to have it with good conscience and to keep up communion with God and enjoy Him in it and live by faith than to have the greatest plenty and live without God in the world. How true that is. Matthew Henry and Solomon agree. Some things are better than other things. If you have a lot or if you have a little, as long as you have God, you have what you need. And I realize that there are some people listening to my voice who have a great deal of this world's goods. You are rich and you know it and others know it. May I say to you, enjoy what God has given, be grateful for it, use it wisely, but understand you're not a better person because you have more money than someone else. And I'm sure there are some people listening to my voice who have very little of this world's goods. Maybe you have almost nothing at all. I say, do not let your poverty turn you away from the Lord. Trust in Him no matter what. I suppose most of us, most of us as hearers, are in that great middle class. We're neither rich nor poor. And I say to you what I say to everyone else, it is better to have God than to live without Him in the world. I want to leave you with this song made famous by George Beverly Shea. For decades, whenever Billy Graham had a great crusade, George Beverly Shea would sing this song. I mention it because it seems to perfectly capture the deeper meaning of our text. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be His than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Perhaps we should let that be our application of this truth. I'd rather have Jesus. How about you? On this Thanksgiving Day, we ought to be the most thankful people on the face of the earth. If we can take Solomon's words to heart, we can have Thanksgiving 365 and be happy and grateful. And every day this year and next year will be a continual feast. Fill your heart with faith. Fill your home with love. If you have a lot or if you have a little, as long as you have God, you have what you need. With that thought, I wish you and yours a very happy Thanksgiving Day. Happy Thanksgiving. 
You've been listening to an American Family Radio special, Thanksgiving 365, featuring Dr. Ray Pritchard. Ray is president of Keep Believing Ministries. If you would like to learn more about Keep Believing Ministries, connect with Ray or hear this message again, visit keepbelieving.com. This has been an American Family Radio special presentation.